Hi, I'm Mark Tucker. And I'm Alan Furstenberg. And we are Two Voice Devs. Two Voice Devs. Hello, Alan. Hey, Mark. Good to see you again. Yeah, thanks. You too. How are you? Getting by, getting by. <laughs> it's, uh, you know, been been busy, but finally wrapping up one project and uh, moving on to another one. And that always feels good. Yeah. Still a little uh, give and take, huh? It's always give and take, isn't it? You know, yeah. that's, that's kind of the nature of what we do. How are things there? Things are going fine. Um, definitely busy. Um, <laughs> project card. There's lots, lots, lots going on, which is, is good. It's a nice way to start the year off. Um, but uh, yeah, just exciting things going on. Hopefully sometime I'll, I'll be able to talk about it. But right now I'm heads down, getting things done. <clears throat> getting things done is always, always the good part. So yeah, I know what you mean about getting things done. I've been working on some things and just, you know, once again, thinking about, uh, well, actually HTTP, um, because, ah. uh, you know, in the end, well, I guess in two different cases, right? When we're working with uh, Alexa skills and Google actions, then um, the endpoint or the webhook, however you want to call it, um, that is, is handling, you know, the application logic for, for the skill or action, um, is is based off of HTTP and and you know and also kind of REST uh, and yeah. you know, APIs that we call inside of our uh, you know, voice app code is uh, it, most times is REST or a lot of times um, so and that's built know, on top of HTTP as which well which is also yeah. built on top right. of HTTP and and I think we had a, a brief conversation that there was a, an an intern that that I had uh, oh probably a year ago. Um, well, well, actually, probably more like a year and a half ago. Um, but anyway, that they had gone through school, but they didn't necessarily weren't taught the basics of like HTTP, um, and and it's something just uh, if you don't know it, then th things seem a little bit more mysterious. Um, you know, not that we're going to go into tons of depth, but uh, but it's important to know that when you do uh, HTTP, it's it's a like a a request and a response. So you send something to uh, uh, an address and a port, you know, so a certain machine and a certain port takes that. And then uh, part of the protocol is that it comes back with a response. And, and, what, and one of the great things about HTTP, and it's kind of why it, um, it really was the one that, that grabbed hold over previous internet protocols, is that it is just that simple. It's yeah. a fairly simple and straightforward request and a fairly simple and straightforward response. And you know, over the years, we've we the the community as a whole um, have added layers on top of it and defined specific things about it. Right. But fundamentally, the the HTTP protocol that most of us are using today. At its core is the exact same protocol that, you know, that that I first used back in 95, 94. Yeah, it, it's crazy. So, like, if uh, if you think about it, you know, back then when you were, you know, well, back when I you know, first started doing web programming, then the then everything was served up on um, on the server. Everything was done server side. So you would say, you know, web server, give me this this page at this you know address. This address. Yeah, and uh, and it came back with 
HTML. And that's, you know, so you had the URL, which was a request with no payload, uh, with a response that, um, that was a payload, right? That had HTML right. coming back as on the HTTP side. So, right. And what was what was great also at the time was that HTTP allowed for things like saying, "I would prefer that this be in English," mm-hmm. but you could also send it to me in French or German, or I would prefer that the response be an HTML page, but. If you only have it in PDF or text, send me those instead. Yeah. And that's been a part of the protocol for a long time. Um, and it's it's been extended since. And you know, things like REST take advantage of that feature, exactly. which have been part of it for a very long time. Yeah, so, and then like yeah, like I was gonna say the next thing that I, that we saw on were, were web pages where then your your HTML page would have JavaScript that would do a, a uh, well, XML I, HTTP call, right? I, I would say even before then, what we had was that we had HTML pages that had forms in them. And these forms oh, yeah. could now yeah. uh, send payload to the server. That's so, true. So previously, the, the first types of requests would only be get this page, get this resource. Yeah. And once forms were introduced, we had this notion of Post this information to the back server, to the server. Yep. and you would get something back in response as well. And those, again, those notions that the, the get operation and the post operation mm-hmm. still exist today. They've been expanded a little bit. We now have you know other other things that go on with them, um, but those were were some of the foundational issues. And then as we started getting JavaScript we saw the need, as you said, of JavaScript to be making some of these calls itself. Yep. And that's where we got the, you know, I can't, I always mess up the name, XML HTTP request. I think it was. Did I get that right? Yeah. Yeah. Where, where the JavaScript was making the call and getting the response back. And then we wanted to start doing things like, well, we want more complicated data structures. And we want to handle these more efficiently. And that's where you saw JavaScript starting to really blossom and really make some do some advanced work. So, so what would happen if I typed in a URL to a page that didn't exist? What would I what would happen on the browser? No, that's a great question. And, and one of the um, we we'd get the infamous 404. Yeah, 404 not found. Right. So yeah. so what is that? What does that mean? So what um, also built into this HTTP is this idea of you always get back a response. It could have a payload or not, but it always has some sort of a status code. And there's different numbered ranges. So like if it's a status code 200 or something in the 200 range, those are varying um, different success scenarios. Um, And if it's in the 300 range, maybe, maybe when you... Um, originally had the the web page. You moved its location, but you still wanted it to be accessed by the old URL. So then you could actually return back a you know a, a three something in the three hundred range, saying, "Oh, this page has moved, and and this is I'm going to redirect you over to this page." Um, or in the like the the four hundred and five hundred range is like four hundred is there's some sort of an error, and it's uh, you know it's typically associated with the client or with you know 
the format's not right or, or something, there's some problem with your request, whereas something in the 500 um, error range um, is that there's some sort of you know, bigger server error that uh, you know, the server's um, just not processing things or you know, some, you know, maybe it's a database connectivity error or something like that. Now, it's also important though to note that some of these response codes are, you know, we, we talk about 400 being a, a, a negative code and it's not always so bad because things like authentication also come back as part of a, a 400 code. Um, so not all of these are necessarily fatal errors, but they're saying, I can't quite do that right now. Yeah, and, it's, and, and yeah, and the, and, the, and the client can respond to that and like, okay, I'm going to retry this or I need to. I'll you know, prompt my user for, for the login and send that information right. to you. Or, you know, there, there are various things that you can do. Whereas something like, you know, the, the 500 error codes are fatal. Yeah. Um, so, so, yeah, so typically when you're, uh, you know, I guess fast forward now when we're using this same technology for um, making API calls, then th that still applies. You can you can make a request um, for um, information. You know, maybe you you want some a list of something back in a JSON array, um, and a two hundred would indicate, yeah, I successfully got this list back. Whereas um, you know something else would indicate that there was some sort of an error, and your your know, code could respond to those status codes and behave um, appropriately. Mm -hmm. And again, I think one of the beauties is that the, this notion of a response code, it's actually you know, deeply historic in internet protocols. You'll find the same concept in FTP protocols. You'll find it in, in older protocols as well. But on HTTP, they've been there pretty much since the beginning. And they've been, with minor variants, pretty unchanged for a long time. So they're, they're very well understood and very well documented. And there also aren't too many of them. I mean, on, on the FTP side, there are tons and tons of codes. Mm -hmm. On the website, there aren't nearly so many, which is in some ways kind of refreshing. Well, and a lot of times, even some of the, um, the utilities or libraries like Axios or others that you would use to, to make these API calls um, through REST, which we'll talk about here in just a minute, um, give you some sort of indication if it's a successful or not. Um, and they, they can even just typically look at, you know, is the range of errors in the 200s or 300s? Mm -hmm. And that would be one way, one type of response versus, um, you don't have to handle every single one of those codes. You can handle them in ranges, mm -hmm. or you can also handle some of them specifically if you needed to, to do that. Or in some cases you can let the library do so. I mean, one of, one yeah. of the good things is that a number of the 300 series codes uh, since they're redirect codes, the library can automatically handle for you. Oh, you know, yeah. if this API is moved to this other location, I'll just call that with the same information in some cases. There are, there are nuances there, but, you know, broadly speaking, you can sometimes get away with doing that. Yeah. So what does REST add on top of or, you know, do for HTTP? Because in the end, it's still HTTP, but what, is, what does REST do, do for us? I think what, what REST, and, and this is the interesting thing I always found about REST, is that a lot of people talk about REST and mean slightly different things. Because there there's no such thing as the REST protocol. No. There's 
you know, it's a broad set of, it, it kind of is now a broad set of guidelines that say resources are located at paths, URL paths. And when we're referencing them, we can use HTTP uh, request types, get, post, put, some others, and they carry with it some, some meaning. So get, for example, usually means you're getting a resource and you're assuming that nothing is going to change on the server. It's what we refer to as idempotent, a nice fancy term that says nothing changes. Yeah. You know, if I get a resource and I get a resource again in a minute, we, it's the same resource. Um, whereas things like post or patch carry with it the semantic that I'm going to be changing something about the resource at that location that I'm specifying. Yeah, and 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 what Rust does is it has some some guidelines in you know, as far as like how do you name the URLs? Like if you've got if you're dealing with products, then you'll have some base URL and then slash products. Um, and if you just if you do a get to slash products, then you're going to get a list of all your products. Now maybe you have query strings or you have headers or something that could, you know, extend that, you know. extend that, or like give you some specific um, like filtering or other things. But the idea is basically, you know, if I, if I do a get for to slash products, then I get everything. If I do a get to slash product slash one, then I'm going to get the, the detailed information for product one, as opposed to a list of, of all the products. Right. And it might further say, you know, if you call, um, get products and you provide a query string of search equals something, then mm -hmm. it does a search against the products as opposed to doing a, a get uh, slash users with a query string of search, that would be a search against users. Um, and again, these aren't rules, these are just guidelines and they're, they're best practices. Right. And developers, you know, going from one to another you learn to start to read the documentation well to understand what the best practices are telling you. Yeah, and typically on a Git, then you don't have any request payload. It's just all what you're going to do on the the as part of the URL and uh, and and the query string after that. Now, um, if you wanted to create a product, then it might be you know you're hitting the products endpoint and you're doing a post um, method um, type of request, and then you have a, you've got a you know, payload, uh, request payload that includes all the information for, uh, for the product. Now, um, you know, is it something where you're, where you're specifying what the ID, the, you know, the uniquely, you know, unique ID is going to be, or is it something where you pass that information and you post it? And part of the response then is going to be the ID of the item that you just created. Um, uh, you, know, you know, I guess also in that same, uh, vein, you could use a post for an update, or you could use a patch or a put right. for an update, right? Right. You usually, though, the the again, the best practice is the guidelines kind of suggest that you'll use post when you're submitting something new, or put when you're using something new, and patch is usually reserved for editing something that already exists. Mm -hmm. um, again, broad guidelines, uh, and these days also. You know, when we talk about uh, the contents, we're talking about JSON and the body of what we're sending. Um, but again, that varies, and that's very certainly varied over time. When when REST first started 
really getting a toehold, that, that payload was almost always XML and you'd be getting XML back. Right. One of the, the neat things about a lot of uh, um, REST endpoints is that in fact, you can specify what format you're sending it in and what format you're expecting it back by changing the content type header and the, the accepted, I think it's accepted. Uh, yes, it's accepted, header. So you could say, you know, this content is in JSON or you can say, um, I will accept HTML. And what a lot of sites will do is if they see that you're accepting HTML, They'll say, oh, you're accessing this directly through a browser. I'll give you the documentation for this endpoint instead mm. of the content. Or maybe it will give you a, a web page that you can dynamically do something with the content. So, you know, it will give you an HTML formatted list of your products. And you can click on one and, and browse through it using a browser. And your automated system will say, I'm accepting JSON and it will get back the JSON because that's an automated system. Yeah. So you so, could have one endpoint, like, so if I, if I'm making the API, I could have my endpoint where I'm saying, get me a list of products. I can check what that uh, content type is that they, that um, the client wants the response to come back in. And I can say, Oh, I do my, my stuff and I get back my response before I send it back to the client, I can say, oh, what was what what format do they want it in? Oh, uh, JSON, okay, I'm just gonna hit and pass off JSON. Oh, XML, I'm gonna format it in XML, I'm gonna send it back. And so um, then you know, multiple developers that are using your API can determine, oh, my system is gonna be easier if I do handle it as XML or- Exactly. Or JSON, but- So again, these are, are nice broad concepts when it comes to, to REST. Now, we kind of we one of the things we mentioned we kind of glossed over a little bit is we talked about how uh, our webhooks are essentially using HTML mm-hmm. to to communicate with the assistants, and um, it's not really true because there's there's another layer in there, which kind of in some ways complicates things and in some ways makes things better. And that's we're not really using HTTP; we're using HTTPS. S for security. S for security, and, and hey, there's you know nothing to knock about it. Um, but what that basically does is it builds on top of HTTP, so it's really underneath. It's the same protocol, but instead of using it on uh, a normal TCP line, which is open to anybody who has access to your packets, it uses uh, SSL or TLS, that's a secure socket layer or transport layer security, yeah, um, to encrypt the communication. So it's it, all it's doing though is encrypting an HTTP request and the reply. So it's, yep. it's the same protocol underneath. It's just now you're, you're exchanging it over an encrypted line, which is good. Encryption's good. <laughs> so um, the... Um... The endpoints that, or the you know webhooks, however you want to call them, um, that for both Alexa and for Google Assistant, in the end, really are just an HTTP POST endpoint. Well, an HTTPS uh, endpoint that accepts POST body that's in 
the format of the, the body request body is JSON and the response comes back as JSON. So you could code just a web server that request that has one endpoint that accepts a post JSON body and returns a you know a JSON response body and that's really all you have to do. But all and any of the libraries or you know frameworks that are out there for building these skills are just making it easier to grab the re- the request and and not necessarily have to do, deal with the raw JSON, but like surface different values and helper methods and properties and whatnot, so that um, that you can handle the input, map it to some sort of a handler, deal with the logic, make your own API call, get the response back, format that, and then it turns that into the JSON message format and then sends that back. Yep. And we've talked about libraries a couple of times in the past. You know, There are plenty out there. There's, uh, there's Jovo, Multivocal. Uh, Google's got several libraries for, for theirs, Alexa Skill Kit for, yep. for theirs. So plenty of libraries that are out there. Um, but you don't need to do any of them. If you really wanted, you can handle the the HTTPS and the JSON yourself. Which means, really, if um, you know, I I wanted to learn Node, and that's where a lot of the early examples were in. Um, but you could code for these voice assistants um, in any language that you want that that can handle that. So, um, right. I, I know and, that- I th- and I think that's one of the great things in general about HTTP is that. It's so ubiquitous that almost every language these days has you know, plenty of libraries to help you on with that front as well. Right. JSON is ubiquitous enough that there are lots of libraries around in any language that you want to work with. So you know, use what is most comfortable to you or what you want to work with. Yeah, no, exactly. So if uh, you know, I'm, I know that there are um, libraries for like .NET, if you're doing C-sharp stuff and want to do Alexa skill, you can do that. Um, there is for Python. I'm sure that there is for Go or for other languages that you want to use. Um, not that we're, you know, we're not really getting into the, I'm hosting this on a server versus uh, serverless and like Lambda functions and Google Cloud functions. But in the end... We'll deal with that another day. In the end, it's HTTP. Exactly. So it's just now it's just where are you going to host it or how are you going to host it and and but in the end it's just some um, endpoint that accepts HTTP post and yep. uh, and deals with JSON. You know one one of the things that we talked about a couple of weeks back are are the um, the really obscure cross origin resource sharing headers cores cores. Um, and that's a relatively recent addition to, to HTTP. And it's mostly to deal with browsers who want to be able to do things like contact APIs that are running on servers that are different than the page that you loaded. And it started because it raises questions of if I'm running a web page and I'm running JavaScript in a web page and I try to get something from somewhere else, how do I trust that somewhere else? Yeah. Almost as importantly, how does that somewhere else trust me? And that's what cores is set up to to address. So it's it's basically a a set of rules which we are not going to go into tonight. That that say, if I am a web server, here is what I am allowing, and if I am a client, here's what I'm allowing the web server to do. Yeah, but in the end, it comes down to the same. methods is it a, is it a get or a post or a put or yep. a 
delete or, uh, you know. Yep. And what content type am I looking for? And what content type is returning? And what servers do I trust? And yep. so all very, very much in the flavor of what has been with HTTP all along, just adding additional security as we saw it being necessary in the browser. Yeah. So um, as we wrap up, what's what are you know, some of the disadvantages of REST? I know that there's some newer things that are coming out um, like GraphQL or um, other ways. So like why why would why did those come out? What was what was the need that it was trying to 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 fix? That's actually a good question. I'm not entirely sure. The the feeling I've always gotten is that in a lot of ways REST is not well defined enough. And there are people that want more clear definitions. REST is very much a, here's a broad guideline of what you should do, while others say, you know, here is the exact protocol and here's how you know exactly what is on the other end and here's exactly how you can find that out. Here's how you can find out the schema and here's how you can find, you know, here's how you can do all of these things. And REST kind of says, yeah, you might want to think about doing that. <laughs> One of the things that I've I've seen, or at least um, on on that, you know, kind of a, a, maybe a different perspective, is that um, Rust divides things up very chatty. So it's it's like if you think about products, I'm dealing with products, I'm dealing with people, I'm dealing with whatever your thing is. So you've got the the one the thing that you're dealing with, and then you've got all the different like what you would do to to serve up CRUD, you know, create, uh, retrieve, update, delete, right? So those kind of map to some of the different HTTP methods. Um, but in some cases it makes it kind of chatty. So like if I want, to, if I need to do something with a product and all the orders that that product are part of, then what seems to happen a lot, um, depending on who's designing the API is that you have to make a call to get your your you know recent orders, and so maybe you get back a response that has your recent orders. But then it's got a list of product IDs. So then you have to make a call to get each of those product IDs. And if you do it you know too strictly, then now that's like a whole bunch of API calls that you have to make to get back the information that you want on your client side um, because of those you know joining the information together. Um, so if you make those that REST call too chatty, then there's a whole bunch of um, calls that you have to make to do that. Whereas, um, and and also it's kind of rigid. You're like, um, this endpoint um, is going to return back a list. And there's not, you know, if you don't build into the API, then it's kind of limited on what, you know, what it can return back, like what's fields. Like maybe in some cases you're on a field and you're just listing things and all you really need is the ID and the name. But maybe on other some other place you need all of the details or you need part of the details, and so with Rust it's hard to to kind of um, that object that you return back determine on what properties are going to be part of that object to return back. Mm -hmm. So with something like GraphQL, then it gives you some flexibility. You're more defining um, a query, and you can if if you know developer one is using it in a certain context and they want this information back to show on the screen and developer two is using it, but in a different way, then they might want completely different data to come back from the same API and the same endpoint. And so with GraphQL and, and uh, things like that, you can define like, this is 
the information that I want and I want you to join it to this thing. And these are the properties that I want you to come back with. So you get more flexibility as a developer to get back just the information that you need. You know, if you're working with something that has a whole bunch of properties, but you don't always need all that, that, you know, many in the context that you're using, you're just wasting space, having it go back and forth. And most importantly, you're wasting time, especially when yep. we're talking about uh, voice apps, we need to respond as quickly as possible. And, you know, if you're making 20 queries to get the information you need for just one response, that's going to take way too long. Yeah. And I've, and I've hit that. That's what, that's one of the biggest headaches with uh, doing um, projects on, on, uh, as an agency, because you're, you walk into a situation, they've got some existing APIs and you're like, sure, we can add voice, you know, to this. And then you get into the APIs and you're like, oh man, now I have to make, you know, 10 calls yeah. when the app, the voice app first starts up, you know, and, and you start worrying about how that, uh, you know, and, and the interest is going to be. One of the interesting bits to me is that we actually see this as well in the evolution of HTTP as well, is that originally um, when it was, it was mostly built around browsers, what they were focusing on doing was establishing a connection. You get a request, send a response, close the connection, and you're done. And what they started seeing over time is, no, really what's happening is you're, you're connecting to a server and you're getting one piece of information. You're getting an HTML page and it's gonna make you load 20 graphics. So now you need yeah. to make 20 more calls to get all the graphics. Um, so over time, they optimized HTTP a little bit for that. And now we're seeing even more optimizations where we're saying we can do some of these uh, round trips. So we can, you know, we can now start pre-caching or start getting responses back, you know, start getting the graphics back even before we've gotten the entire page. Because yeah. you know, we know I'm going to send you all of this at once, or we're going to need to send you content bundles. So we're sending a page and all its graphics at the same time. Um, and then starting to look at other optimizations based on how are we making those calls? What are the things that we tend to do when communicating between a client and a server? Yeah. And HTTP is evolving to help handle with those scenarios. Yeah, so it's, it's, it's just uh, fascinating to me because... The, Things have changed a lot. Um, you know the types of applications that before it was like a website with twenty pages, right. and you know it's all on this server side. To now things are becoming you know these web applications and a lot of stuff like in some cases all the stuff is happening in the on the client and the browser and it's making these API calls and how, there's just all know, kinds of things that are right. And and how are, do we actually leave it so that it's running, you know, it can be running on the client and you don't need to hit the server, except periodically you do want to check the server to see if there's an update and how do you update and lots yeah. and lots. Of, so there, there's lots of stuff that, uh, that HTTP and its related technologies have all evolved into. Yeah. Um, but at its heart, we still have HTTP and its request and response. Yeah. Pretty amazing. Very amazing how this technology works sometimes and how it's evolved. Yeah. So if you've got questions about, you know, how HTTP works, if there's something you feel like we haven't covered or that you want to hear a little bit more about, you can reach out to Mark and I, find us on Twitter, LinkedIn, or in the comments below. And 
we hope uh, we hear from you and uh, we will address your questions another time on Two Voice Devs. Two Voice Devs. Take care, Alan. Take care, Mark. Have a good week. All right. Take care, everybody.